Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Hi, this is Johnny Eccles from Love, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Pantheon Podcast presents from Hollywood, California, The Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaiman. You are invited to join the Hollywood princess as she explores her lifelong pursuits in the occult, sex, love, and that sinful rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, step into the dark parlor of Pleasant Gaiman as she brings you the Devil's Music. Hi, this is Pleasant Gaiman. Welcome to The Devil's Music, a Pantheon podcast. A little bit about me. I'm a rock and roll witch from Hollywood, California. My lifelong obsession with music and the occult started around the age of 12. In the 70s, I was one of the first punks in L.A., and as a teenager, I worked at the Whiskey and made a Xerox fanzine called Lobotomy, which led me to writing for, like, every major rock publication you can think of. In the 80s and the 90s, I fronted three bands. I'm a best-selling author with eight books out and more on the way. For the past 30 years, I've toured around the globe teaching and performing dance, Maybe you've seen me in music videos, feature films, and documentaries. I'm also an actor with several film credits. Oh, and look for me in the new Go-Go's documentary. Find out more about me at PleasantGaiman.com. That's P-L-E-A-S-A-N-T-G-E-H-M-A-N.com. I'm really excited to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network of Rock and Roll Shows. Everyone here tells stories about the music we love so much, each one with a different twist. Find them at all the places you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, anywhere you listen. And make sure to go on over to Pantheon and recommend us to your friends. Today's guest is my dear friend, Steve Balderson. He's an internationally acclaimed, award-winning film director, a screenwriter, author, speaker, teacher, and a hypnotist. I've had the pleasure of knowing him for years, and I've also appeared in almost all of his films. Film critic Roger Ebert has praised him wildly in every actor he's ever worked with, including Mink Stoll and the late Karen Black, just adores him. Steve is truly one of the most talented and driven people I've ever met. Not to mention, super funny and twisted. See for yourself. Hollywood, 
today I'm going to be interviewing my favorite film director ever and also someone I've worked with for ages, Mr. Steve Balderson, who is a really ridiculously talented guerrilla indie filmmaker with, I don't even know how many films under his belt, but I've been in all of them except one. He's worked with incredible stars like Mink Stoll, Karen Black, and me. <laughs> Hi, Steve. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Um, so let's, um, let's start off like trying to talk about uh, how many films you've done, how you started doing films, and uh, how we met. Well, <clears throat> I think technically, if you count all the documentaries and the, the fictional features, I think it's 17 features. And this isn't counting the, the stuff that you did in Kansas when you were like eight years old, right? No, I'm just Cor kidding. Cor no, correct. It's not. <laughs> no, the stuff that I did up until, no, I'm, I'm counting from Pep Squad, which was in, we filmed it in 97, 1998. And I would consider that my first film because it was the first film that was actually on 35 millimeter film. And it was like a, a, my first real professional project. So since then, there have been 17. And, and um, so Pep Squad was, um, Pep, I went to Cannes with Steve for Pep Squad because I had a song in the movie and that was when, before we started working together with me acting in his films. But um the Cannes, the Cannes Film Festival with you was one of the most insane experiences I've ever had. <laughs> it was unbelievable. And I was 22 years old. And to go from a small town, rural Kansas to Cannes <laughs> with no zis, <laughs> no zass about it, although there was lots of sass, <laughs> um, was a big, huge culture shock for me. I mean, it was really intense. I mean, I loved it. It was a lot of fun, but I also told myself that I would never return unless I was up for the Palme d'Or or on the jury. But um, one, of the, one of the craziest things that happened in Cannes during Pep Squad was Pep Squad was a, sort of a satire film, like lots of Steve's films, about um, school shootings. And that was when they were first coming into the forefront and um everybody in Cannes was French or European and they kept calling it peep squad um and 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 they were like peep squad a uh, école shooting <laughs> <laughs> totally no it was crazy it was it was unreal it was the most amazing time and it's one of those things that I'll I'll cherish forever because it's like well first of all how rare is it for anybody to have their first movie show during the Cannes Film Festival. I didn't even know that. You know, I was so young and naive and, you know, from the middle of nowhere that I didn't realize that all of us sitting around that table at dinner, the night where we were trying to both hit on the wine steward. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how and rare I, won, I won that. <laughs> oh, I know you did. But we didn't know until the end. <laughs> No, your mom kept wanting to know if anybody on anybody that was with the whole crew that came to the Cannes Film Festival, if anyone was getting any action. 
No, I know. Those were the days. <laughs> the late 90s were the days. Um, yeah, so uh, we met because Johnette Napolitano from Concrete Blonde was scoring that film. And she had worked on a recording of uh, something that you did with Christian Hoffman. And it was this amazing song. And it was part of, it was part spoken word, part like, I don't know, sort of jazzy, uh, David Lynch-like. I don't know, it was just this really cool feeling. And I thought, oh, what's this song? Like I, I came over one day to the studio and she had it playing. It was I called said, Super Mega Jaja. Yeah, and I was like, what is this? And I, I said- my Jaja Gabor fetish come to life. <laughs> which was unbelievable. And it just, it sounded so perfect. So I asked her to just plop it down in this scene and it, from the moment the scene started on the exact frame, through every frame during the entire sequence, which had already been edited, the song and the beats fit like it had been scored to this piece, this sequence. Yeah, that was crazy. Every little movement fit. And wh when I saw it, I, I was blown away. It was, it was, it was crazy. crazy. It was totally crazy. And then I... <clears throat> I asked her to introduce us, and I think you were doing a reading at Skylight Books uh, the following week, and I went down, and that's where we met. And when I saw you, I thought, we're both a thousand years old spiritually or more, and we've connected so many times in so many lifetimes, and that's when it began. Yeah, that was pretty obvious. Um, Stephen and I, before we even... Well, we had started working together, but this was before Can. We started writing each other the like pages and pages and pages long um, letters to each other. Like they were like diaries. This was like pre-email time, or maybe there was like the beginnings of email. But we used to just write and illustrate these letters that were insane. But for um, let's skip ahead though for. Yes. Our listeners' interest, and um, we'll we'll just jump ahead. Let I want to talk about Firecracker, which was an absolutely crazy movie that Steve did, and it was based on a true life murder that had occurred in his hometown of Wamego, Kansas, and the murder took place in the town. Um, the kid that committed the murder, and he murdered his older brother, um, was involved in this crazy affair with a singer at a sideshow um, from a carnival that came that came through town. And this was like in the 50s, I think. Was it in the 50s when the murder occurred? Yeah, the early 50s. Okay, so this was in the early 50s, and it was legendary in Kansas. Um, I don't think that I think anybody would have to hunt for it in, in true crime, just in general, because it wasn't like a serial killing or something. But so everyone in Kansas grew up knowing about this wild murder that happened at a carnival. And Steve became so obsessed with it that he started writing the film Firecracker around it because the murder had occurred on the 4th of July. Um, but concurrently, the boy at the time, but the man later, um, had just been released from prison. So Steve got him to be on the, um, like an advisor for the film. And 
The film was shot at the exact same carnival that had been coming through town for decades. And it was shot in the actual murder house. Not to mention the fact that Karen Black, like the famous actress, was playing the mom in it and a dual role as the singer in the carnival. And that we got, um, we got, because I, I was the, the one that sort of inst- like instigated this. We got Mike Patton to play Frank, like the horrifying, sadistic head of the carnival. So in this movie, Firecracker, before I go on with it, just letting all you listeners know that pretty much everybody in the whole cast, every character, which was almost all of them were based on real characters, either got raped or completely sexually and psychologically abused or, um, you know, like bludgeoned to death. Yeah. (laughs) It was definitely a feel-good hit. But also Jane Weedland from the Go-Go's was in it, and there was real circus freaks, and I'm saying that in quotes just to be PC, like George the Giant, who's like eight feet tall, and um, um, Katzen, and the and Enigma, Enigma, who was in the um, Jim Rose Circus Sideshow. And what was Kathy's last name? Well, she was the daughter of Lobster Boy, so she played Lobster Girl in the movie, Kathy Barry. Lobster Boy was also like a sort of a sadistic, crazy carnival freak in real life. Yeah, so this, totally. this was just like a recipe for the best kind of like disaster ever. But tell, tell, tell everyone how you started working with Karen Black to begin with. And then I'm going to tell my favorite anecdote from, from that shoot with her. Okay. So when I first wrote this character and well, both of them, like I had seen Trilogy of Terror, of course, and Day of the Locust. And I thought, well, if there's anyone on earth who could play two totally opposite parts in the same movie, it's Karen Black. So I had this concept and I, I wrote it and I sent it to her. I don't remember how I did. It was like during this time period, I got Debbie Harry on the phone. I got Dennis Hopper on the phone. They're calling me back. I'm going to Karen Black's house and I'm living in this little tiny town in Kansas. I don't know how I did it. As like, <laughs> but, as like, like barely old enough to drink legally. Exactly. And so I sent her this and she read it and we talked and she said no. And then I well, said, that's unacceptable. <laughs> so I, I wrote her another letter and I called her back and I maybe it made, maybe she had a note and I rewrote something or I, you know, I sent it back and I said, Karen, here's the new script. You've got to do this. And she said, no. <laughs> and I said, okay, that's unacceptable. And I was at this for at least six to eight months. And I came out to LA to meet with, I think it was on the trip that I went to Dennis Hopper's house and I decide, you know, I'm going to call Karen again and I'm just going to go to her house tomorrow. <laughs> and so I showed, stalker. <laughs> totally. And I showed up and when she saw my face, well, first of all, I was there in her living room waiting for like 45 minutes. <laughs> like, like there were these big white plush sofas and I, I walked in and I'm like, you sit here, she'll be with you. You know, it's one of those things. And then I, I sat there and I waited and I waited and my brow started sweating and my armpits started sweating. And I was like, oh my God, there's no air in here. What am I going to do? And then 45 minutes later, I see her 
like a hundred feet away, leaving a room and going into another one. <laughs> but when I see her, she looks unbelievable, amazing. Like she's got like the perfect smoky eye makeup and the hair is perfect and the, the robe is perfect. And then she disappears again for another 10 minutes. And I'm sitting there on the sofa and she walks into the room finally. And she sits down and she says, you look nothing like the person who I thought wrote that script. The person who I thought wrote that script looked very gaunt and very scary and very sharp and angular and sort of dangerous. And you look very friendly and, and happy and nice and soft and, and sort of cuddly. And I was like, well, okay, thank you. And she said, okay, fine, I'll do it. <laughs> Really? I never even heard this before. That's crazy. Yeah, and, and one of the things she said in that was, she, she told me this sentence, I admire your persistence. And I actually took that line and added it to the script after she said it to me at that point, so that when she le le leaned out the carnival sideshow window of her gypsy wagon, and she looked down at the boy, she says, I admire your persistence. Oh, I remember that. That's crazy. And that's why it's there. Okay, so let's talk about um, the shoot of, of Firecracker. I'm going to tell a story about my first day on it. So first of all, Steve cast me as Estelle, a three-breasted carnival burlesque dancer in the sideshow. And so I, ha I was trying to make my own costume, and um, it was hard, so I called my friend Willie, who designed for Victoria's Secret and Felina Brazier's, and I just called them up and I said, if I was, like, what would you do to make a, a bra with three cups? And he said, why would you want that? And I said, because I'm going to play a sideshow dancer in a, in a carnival movie. And he said, oh. What's your cup size? What's your band size? And the next day he sent over three different prototypes that all had the, the labels of it in there. And I picked one and then he made another one. So I decorated it. And then he also ordered me a mastectomy prosthetic for the third boob because um, to get a real uh, special effects like third breast put on would have probably cost more than the entire budget of Steve's entire movie at that point. So he just like, he gave, he threw in like a free mastectomy prosthetic, but then it got lost during, it got lost from FedEx during a hurricane in Rhode Island or something. Remember we were panicking about the boob coming? <laughs> we were panicking about the boob every other day. <laughs> yeah, I know. Because then when I finally got to Kansas and had it, um, and we did a makeup test, it took like an hour and a half to, to get it applied to my chest. And I was sitting there topless in Steve's parents' living room with people from the crew walking by and averting their eyes. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I was like, no, you're going to see this every day of the shoot. So finally, we got it down to um, about it took about an hour, but I'd have to, it was also the middle of September in Kansas and it was so fucking humid and the boob was put on with like a combination of like latex and like toupee tape and mortician's wax and all this stuff. And the trailers that we had for the, um, for, you know, for hair and makeup and wardrobe were just like, like, you know, seventies RVs that people from, 
you know, Wamigo <laughs> and other parts in Kansas had like just sort of donated to the production. So there were all these like falling apart things with like broken screen doors and stuff. And in the makeup trailer, the makeup artist, Linda, um, she was like, she'd be putting my boob on every morning and we'd be all like tired and sipping coffee. And she'd have to like be pressing it up against my chest. And so some production assistant would knock on the door and Linda would be in there with her hand, one hand holding my boob on and the other hand brandishing a fly swatter going, God fucking damn it, fucking flies, God damn it, God damn it. <laughs> and she would, she scared everybody. So my first scene with Karen was, um, we had to be assaulted in, in a carnival trailer. And I had made the absolute mistake of watching for like the 400th time I watched The Day of the Locust, which was always one of my favorite movies. And then after I watched it that night, I had a complete panic attack when I found out that my very first scene in the movie was getting raped in a carnival trailer with Karen. Do you remember this, Steve? I do. And it's so amazing because, of course, I had no idea all the the pressure that anybody else was going through. I was just making a movie. And so it's like, well, today we're going to do the rape scene. <laughs> yeah, we're going to start off with the rape scene. So I was like hyperventilating, not because I was getting raped, but because I was working with Karen Black and had idolized her for years. Anyway, um, also my boyfriend at the time, James, a.k.a. Dirty, had never been on a film set before ever. And he drove out from from L.A., um, to to you know to visit me on on set but also to be an extra so when they were casting all the carnies like everybody had to get fixed up with makeup and wardrobe and uh, all the the wardrobe people looked at him and said oh you're fine you know because he just looked like a crazy carny you know he was, all, <laughs> totally. he was all dirty and filthy and stuff so anyway he's sitting there he's gonna be in this scene karen black and i were there and she was she was talking to me about acting and I was trying not to act like I was losing it. And then this guy walks in and goes, um, it was like some Nebraska college student, farm boy, cute boy that you had hired. He walks in and he goes, hi, my name's Sean and I'll be your rapist today. So that kind of like <laughs> broke the ice. <laughs> and um, um, so he, I don't think he'd ever really been in a film before. So, so you got Karen to, um, you got, you got dirty to hold Karen. And then Sean was going to rape me while Karen was being held down. And the, the camera was really close and, and Sean didn't have very much film acting experience. So the first few cuts, he was holding me, but it didn't look like we were really struggling. And then you kept going cut, cut, because it didn't look realistic. So both you and I started explaining to him like how to make it look more realistic when the camera was that close. So then when we did that take, I remember we were fighting so hard that my spike heel scraped his whole arm and it started bleeding. So you were like, okay, cut, cut, cut. And then I think he moved the camera so we, we couldn't see like the big giant scratch mark on his arm. And then we started again. And then because it was so hot and humid where we were filming it and we had just been struggling, I was sweating so hard the boob fell off, the third boob, so with a big farting <laughs> noise, and you were like, cut, we lost the boob. <laughs> <laughs> so after we got fixed that up, you know, and that took a while, then we started um, 
the rape scene again and it was going really well until it was going really well meaning we were fighting like cats and dogs while he was trying to rape me until dirty threw Karen Black aside like a rag doll and jumped on top of Sean and started punching him. And then you're like, cut, cut, what the fuck is going on? And he's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, he's hurting my girlfriend. <laughs> no, but it was so that, the most- That was how the filming started for me, at least that day. Yeah, well, and it was the perfect take. I mean, it was, it, it was so realistic. <laughs> Yeah, that was crazy. Um, what's um, but what was um, what was your favorite? Uh, like, talk about working with Karen and a memory you have of her, and also about Mike Patton because that was it was that was crazy. He 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 was and is, but at that time was such a gnarly rock star. And then um, that was his first movie. Well, the cool thing I was just talking to Mike last week and and reminiscing a little bit. And uh, we were talking originally about him playing sort of the sidekick to Dennis Hopper. Mm -hmm. And so Dennis wanted to play that character and he was adamant about it. Dennis was, Dennis Hopper. And so uh, I entertained that for a little while. And at one point, when we couldn't get the funding to make it with Dennis, I thought, well, then Mike should play this part because Mike's actually just as crazy and gritty and insane as Dennis is. And he should show us his version of, of Dennis Hopper, like from Blue Velvet, you know, something like that. Yeah. And um, Mike was really hesitant. And, and I, I convinced him by saying that it's not like it's theater. It's not stage. Making a movie is just like making a record. So you go into the studio and if the take isn't perfect, you do a second take, you know, or you punch it in or you, you do sort of an edit. And so I, I said, you know, we could do it a thousand times. It doesn't matter. It, what matters is you have the freedom to choose again. If it didn't work, choose again. And he was like, oh, that makes me feel a little bit more comfortable because the idea of like going in on a set and like performing it perfectly the first time, like you're on stage is terrifying to some people, especially if it's in a field that's similar, but not in their ballpark, like in, in what they're used to. Um, so that was cool. Like, and I'm, I'm glad I did that because he also played the dual parts and he played the brother who was the alcoholic and abuser and also the abusive carnival owner. And what was so amazing about him is that he did those parts so drastically different that afterwards people didn't recognize him. Yeah, they didn't know that it was him. No, it was crazy. One guy was like, you know, the the carnival guy was crazy, but who played the brother? He was amazing. And I'm like, the (laughs) same guy. (laughs) You know? I don't know. It was amazing. And and working with Karen was always awesome because she would always bring something to the table that was this sort of magical... I I don't know how to... spiritual is almost the right way to say it. I'm not religious, but there was something religious about watching her work. It was, it came and it was just, um, full of energy, not of this planet. Like she was channeling. It was, I thought it was channeling. Totally. And she, a number of years later, um, 
I can't remember exactly what year it was, but uh, she was dying of pancreatic cancer and we had one of our final phone calls. And she told me, do you want to know what it's like to know you're truly alive? And I said, absolutely. And she said, it's in the unknown. If you go down this road a thousand times and you know what's coming up ahead of you and you can see this tree in this village and you know the traffic's going to get worse, you just sort of check out. But if you go down this road that you've never been down, you don't know what's up ahead. You don't know what's around the bend. So you are very alert and very present. You're totally alive and there is no better place to be. And when I heard that, I was like, wow, yeah, you're right. I don't know exactly what that means. I need to experience that. I need to find the truth and the experience in that. So then I incorporated that into my filmmaking work from that day forward. Uh, and for that, I will always be indebted and grateful to her because that was like a sort of a, a gift and working with her was a gift and she was unbelievably talented and will be immortal in celluloid history for eternity. So there you have it. Yeah, and you also worked with her in Stuck, as well as Mink Stall. The warden said, come out with your hands up in the air. You don't stop this ride, you all gonna get the chair. Two gun Matilda said, it's too late to quit. Pass the dynamite, Molly, cause man, this music a ride. To help them win the fight Drove up to the prison In the middle of the night Each and ever trooper He looks so tall and fine All the chicks went crazy up in When Stuck was a Black and white women in prison Movie that I was very Honored to play um, uh, A dyke Cop killing hooker On death row <laughs> Well, of course. <laughs> In the role she was born to play. <laughs> Aside from the three-breasted <laughs> burlesque dance. Yeah, of course. No, that was hilarious. I mean, it was shooting in Macon, Georgia, where we actually Another filmed. human place. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. Like, I, after moving from Kansas to Los Angeles and not having the humidity, I will, I, not again. <laughs> there will not be a humid moment in my life again. Um, it was so surreal going to Macon, Georgia to do a women in prison movie where, of course, everybody's, you know, very stylized and it's jazzy and they're all wearing stiletto heels in prison, you know. And, and ja Jane Weedland was in that too. Yes, Jane Weedland, Susan Trailer, Mink Stoll, Karen Black, you... Uh, it was amazing. Starina Johnson was, it was one of her first films and she was unbelievable Stacey. in it. And Stacey Cunningham was unbelievable as the guard. Guard. Um, and we filmed in the actual prison. Do you remember but, that but, day? But, we went to yeah. Those? Oh my God. Do I remember the prison? But I have to, I have to interject what you did to us on the first day. Oh yeah. In the, in the old building. Um, there was some really giant old abandoned building in the old part of downtown Macon. And um, Steve had had prison cells built into that. So he had all of us girls come up there to 
just to check them out. They're like, go in your cells. Like maybe you want to decorate them or something. And uh, Mink Skull <laughs> and I had already been, <clears throat> we'd already been um, communicating. Like we'd been calling each other and I couldn't believe I was getting the chance now to work, not, you know, not just having worked with Karen Black on a movie, but now also Mink Stoll, who I'd been idolizing for the same amount of time as Karen Black. And Mink Stoll and I were going to be sellies. And so she was a religious zealot that had like murdered a bunch of like FBI agents or something <laughs> in a shootout. Um, but we were going to be cellmates. So we decided that there, before we even got to the set, we decided that we were trying to figure out, we thought there was going to be bunk beds and we were going, well, who would have the top bunk, you or me? And, and then I made a shank out of a toothbrush. I was like sitting there on my driveway for hours, like sharpening the end of a plastic toothbrush. And I sent a picture of it on my flip phone to Mink Stoll and it said I made a shank. And then I emailed it to everybody in the cast and everyone's like, I want a shank. Um, <laughs> but so, so Steve um, had us go to ostensibly to decorate our cells and then we all went into them and then he locked us in. <laughs> yeah, that's what you do. <laughs> and then he just that, left us in there. Yeah, because I wanted to, I mean... Uh, for for all fun and intents and purposes, just to get the feeling of what it feels like, you can't get out. And you're trapped here. And you might only be trapped here for an hour, but could you imagine what it feels like to really be here for like a year, two years, three years, life sentence, you know? like, And just even experiencing it for an hour, you guys got that, didn't you? Oh, yeah, we all got that. <laughs> <laughs> That was one trick that I, I used to love tricks like that to play with actors. But then I realized that sometimes it's also just about acting and you don't have to like actually live it <laughs> to, to, to act. <laughs> Thank God you didn't throw us in the hole. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, um, let's talk about the Bibb County Jail in Georgia. Totally. I was so excited. So Elliot Dunwoody was a prominent businessman and, um, filmmaker, and he knew everybody in town. The Dunwoody family has been there for a thousand years, right? And so he knew how we could film at the prison. And just to get some sort of hallway shots and some, you know, in the yard where people would go out and like exercise and work. And that was basically all we wanted to shoot at the prison. It was basically exteriors, you know, even though there were a few interiors. And so he arranged it for us to go one day. And when we showed up, there were so many strict rules and things that were, it was so overwhelming. I couldn't even follow the order of the rules. It was like, you know, okay, number one, you, you walk through this gate and you don't do this. You walk through this <laughs> gate, you don't do that. You walk through this gate, you don't do this. And you're like, what the fuck was I supposed to not do on the first one? <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing that I did when, when um, the, the actual real bailiff he was um, he was lecturing to all of us women to like Jane Weedlin and Mink Stahl and me and Starina and Stacy. He was going, "All right, ladies, um, you're you're in the Bibb County Penitentiary. We have more than eight hundred highly dangerous inmates here. At any time you're in here." Do not make eye contact. Do not make verbal contact with the inmates. And as he was saying this, I was standing near a desk. This was in the parole room. 
And they had this like really a whole bunch of really cheesy little pads with like like from the seventies with the graphic of like a you know a, a quill pen and an inkwell and it said from the desk of the Bibb County Jail you know making making sure to and so he was talking that to us and just like sort of automatically I slid my hand onto it and grabbed the pad and put it in my pocket and then I was like holy shit I'm like stealing from a prison but I wasn't about to put it back at that at that time anyway. We're sitting there in our spike heels and our little, like, really tight, like, sort of 50s, like, dresses. And um, then suddenly it was time for us to go, to walk through the prison. So we're walking in a line with the bailiff through this never-ending halls of the prison. And for anyone who's listening, this was so far before Orange is the New Black that it's not even funny. <laughs> It was, what year did Stuck come out? Was it 2009? It was something like that. It was oh, 2008 no, we or shot it in, I think we shot it in 2008, and I think it did come out in 2009. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, so we're walking through in a line behind the bailiff, and he was like, you know, he kept looking back to make sure that we were okay. And then from the far end of the hall, we saw these guys all chained together, wearing striped suits, black and white striped suits and little hats, like little almost beret hats. And it looked like a scene from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And then um, Susan Trailer said, hey, is somebody else filming another movie in here? And Jane said, oh, yeah, someone's filming a movie. And they got closer and closer. And um, I said, hi. And then they all started catcalling and screaming. And the bailiff turned around and said, do not make eye contact with, do not make verbal contact with the inmates. <laughs> and, then, and then we were all like, oh, my God, those are real inmates. And they're wearing that. Totally. It was so surreal. It was unreal. It was amazing. And then we filmed there all afternoon and left and... We made it out alive, and you did not get arrested for stealing from the prison. <laughs> <laughs> um, talk about working with Mink Stoll, because she was so fun to work with, and you've worked with her a few times. Right? <clears throat> well, okay, what's amazing about Mink is... Well, okay, so I'm in post-production right now on my new feature, which was is the closest that I've been able to be an artist 100% since Firecracker. I didn't have anybody to answer to. I had no producers, no crazy actors, no financiers, you know, name, go down the list. This was one of the most truest movies from conception through all the way to the the story and the script and the screen and the visuals and the editing and all of it that I've tell, been able tell to- Tell us what, it, what it's called. Um, well, the title as it is today is Oliver and Evelyn Black. And it's a story that stars Xander Berkeley and Sarah Clark and Mink Stoll. And Xander is a, uh, an artist who is very successful, but not so much anymore. And Oliver Black has been given a commission to make a painting or a sculpture and his wife wakes up dead and he through process of creating uh, this sculpture potentially brings her back to life 
and Mink Stoll plays the art dealer. And when I was working with Mink on this most recent movie, she reminded me of something that went back to stuck with the women in prison film. She said, typically people ask her to play things that are satirical or tongue in cheek or dark comedy or campy or crazy. And she's never actually allowed to show her dramatic side. And she's one hell of an actress. Like she can be a dramatic actress. It's just nobody's ever really seen her that way. So when I asked her to do this most recent movie, uh, she didn't hesitate. Uh, and we filmed it in Maine in uh, October. And so we're now finishing it up, visual effects and score and sound design and all those things. But working with her again was so much fun because I hadn't seen her since Stuck was in the festival circuit and we would be flown places to like Outfest. Uh, it premiered in LA at Outfest and then Stuck also... Uh, premiered at the Boston Underground Film Festival and Mink won the Lifetime Achievement Award and we went to Rain Dance and uh, dozens of festivals worldwide and hanging out with Mink at those places, we really got to know each other. And we talked about doing a, a family Christmas caper comedy, which I also talked to you about around this same time, which we still haven't made, which we probably will at some point. But um, this most recent time working with Mink was really great because... I got to see her. She is one of the easiest actors to take direction. So, you know, she like walks across the screen. She does it some way. She looks at you and she says, do you want me to do that a little bit more blue, a little bit more orange, a little bit more yellow? And you say, yeah, let's just try all of them. And then she'll do it. And she doesn't care. She's just, you know, she loves her job. She's great at it. And she's an icon. And it's so amazing to work with someone who's been in some of my favorite movies and, and to know that we're, we're collaborating. Like, there's nothing greater than, than to collaborate with artists that you admire, for sure. Yeah, for sure, totally. Um, she was so much fun to work with, too. She was always in a good mood. Always. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is when I, when I cast a movie, I try to think about who's going to like get along, you know, because this person might be the fantastic actor for this part. But if everybody else in the scene doesn't get along with them, then at the end of the day, when we're having dinner and we're singing Kumbaya around the campfire, like we did in Castro <laughs> Club, you know, it's like we had one of the Backstreet Boys making his acting debut and Daniela C from the L word and you and me and Jane and we're all sitting around enjoying each other. That's the, the key, I think, to, if you're gonna collaborate and make art of any kind, to enjoy the people that you're also working with. Because yeah, you, you, have a really, you have a great knack for that. For picking yeah, I love people. it. It's important, it's so important to bring people together that want to be together. <laughs> because if you're bringing people together that don't want to be together, it will show and you'll feel it. And that's not gonna be so fun to be around. Was that, was that, that was Kevin Richardson's first movie, right? Correct. He had been on Broadway. He was in Chicago on Broadway. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, just like a year or two before he had been wow. in Chicago. And so I knew he was a good actor, but, and he had been trying to sort of show that he was a good actor and nobody would believe him because it's like, oh, what, a Backstreet Boy wants to play an alcoholic, abusive, sex-crazed cutter? He, and, was, and just, he was so good. He, he was, was so he, good. He blew me away. 
Totally. But so many people didn't believe it beforehand. And then when they saw it, and he did win a number of Best Actor awards at festivals, you know, then they were like, oh, wow, he's great. <laughs> you know, it like, sometimes it just takes believing in, in somebody's spirit and their talent, and you see it happen. He was, he was so fucked up in that part. He was just like, he was scary. Like when we were watching some of the scenes in the casserole club, which um, I'm going to, I'll have you in a second describe what that movie was about. Cause it's so dark. That might, that might be your darkest movie. Although <laughs> all of your movies are really, well, not all of them, but most of them are pretty dark. I remember thinking that a boy band person was going to be in the movie. And I was sort of having my doubts too. And he was so nice and genuine off screen. And then when he was acting, he he was so intense and scary that Jane and I were watching the scenes getting filmed and we started crying. But that happened a lot also in Fire Firecracker with like yeah. Mike Patton too. I mean, just like ha- how they could adapt such dark, like just embody all that darkness. But um, yeah. So describe what the what the plot. You know, just do a little summary of the plot of the Casserole Club because that that was and that was a real that was a real true story too. So tell everyone how that developed. Yeah. So every movie I do sort of kind of leads to the next one. So when we're in Macon, Georgia, filming Stuck, we hear about a group of sort of uh, wife swappers or husband swappers, you know? And it's sort of like this this group that comes together and they bake casseroles for each other and they have big dinner parties. And then mommy and daddy might go home with someone else. <laughs> and they actually called it the casserole club. And it was sort of known and people were members. And- Remember we heard about it all the time. Like anytime like there'd be some recipe at one of the places where we were eating because everyone in Macon opened up their homes to us like we'd hear about the casserole club all the time. And so then we're like, what is the casserole club? At first we all thought it was cooking too. Totally. But no, it was about let's get cooking. (laughs) (laughs) Cooking with gas. Exactly. So then um, we, I sent the screenwriter Frankie Cranes down there to investigate the casserole club. And I don't know to the extent at which he, infiltrated the actual casserole club or whether he just observed it and used his creative spirit to create characters. But we created the script together, he and I, and when we were filming this movie, uh, it, it all stemmed around the idea of, it was set in 1969 and it was historically accurate. And uh, each costume and production design element and character were period specific And it was about these five married couples and the destruction of most of their relationships. One of the relationships got stronger throughout the film. And that was the relationship that you played opposite Hunter Bodine. Yeah. And we were the ones that were the actual swingers that kind of started it. But we already, we had a a strong relationship, but everyone else's went to shit. Exactly. Everybody else's fell apart and it was really, really dark. And, And there was an accidental suicide uh there was some really terrible emotional abuse you know done between the characters in that film and and some really terrible turmoil and depression in some of the others and it's it starts off really campy and fun and there's lots of colors and food and 
crazy sexy things and it just gets darker and darker it's like a train wreck it's like the <laughs> the the next car hits you and it feels worse than the last car hit you you know it is just terrible and you leave that movie and you're just like god damn but uh it was because it was historically accurate and of artistic importance was invited to be part of the United States Library of Congress's permanent collection. Uh, so it's always going to be there for eternity. you got all the historically accurate um sets <laughs> well one trick is okay. you film you film in palm springs and you rent a mid-century modern home that's already decked out exactly in 1950s early 60s style but then what do you tell them when you're renting it oh well i told them <laughs> that we were going to be a writer's camp or like we were going to be getting together to do some like workshopping of a story and we might be filming it we might not is that okay and they're like oh sure that's fine and then so we had to sort of pretend you know we i put these posters on the doors outside that said we're writing in here please be quiet <laughs> or we're doing a writer's <laughs> workshop <laughs> But there was always like, anytime the door knocked, everyone, like you'd be like shushing everyone and we'd all be like frozen in place in case it was someone that you didn't want anyone to see like the movie cameras or, or all totally. the actors. Well, that was the first time I started getting, okay, I smoke tobacco and I drink alcohol, but I don't do any other drugs. And so I started getting addicted to stealing scenes for a movie. So we would drive around town, and I remember a couple of different times, Daniela C. and Mark Booker were in, were in one car, and uh, Starina Johnson and, and Garrett Swan were in the other car. And we would drive around until we found a house that looked cool from the outside, and we would park, and we would get out with the camera and the mics and everything and say, okay, go up to the door and just <laughs> turn around and pretend you're closing it like this is your house and just walk naturally and perform the rest of the scene like you're walking out of your house. And if anybody's inside or comes to the door, just run to the car and we'll get out of here. <laughs> you, did, you did that with me too in the opening scene of the movie. I had to come down off some random porch and I didn't, yes. know, that it, I didn't know that it was a stolen scene until right yeah. now. We didn't have any permission to be at any of those places. <laughs> 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 and then one time, oh my God. So Michael Mays and Susan Trailer who are having an affair sort of in the last part of it uh, are doing a sex scene in this garden, which we think is totally isolated and safe. We turn the corner and the fucking Palm Springs police department is right there. <laughs> it was crazy. So, 
yeah, no, that, that was, that was insane. Doing that movie was insane and, uh, quite an experience. And I think that also, even though it wasn't humid, I think it was 120 in the shade. When yeah, it was we 120. Even at night, yeah. it was 120. Um, yeah, the other thing that I remember, uh, well, I remember a lot of that, but when, when we were doing the swinging sex scene in the pool, and you had a whole entire like cast meeting of everyone that was going to be in it because it was pretty every it was everybody that was going to be in the whole movie that was going to be doing this swinging pool party. So we had to sit down and talk about who was comfortable with what level of nudity, and um, so you know, some yeah, like somebody talk- said. Well, like somebody was like, oh, I'll show my butt. Like some guys like, I'll show my butt, butt, but not the front side. Or I'll show my boobs, but not my butt. Or there was a whole variety of answers. Yeah. And then, um, so, yeah. So anyway, there was a, there was a scene where I had to, um, like, there was still frolicking going on in the pool, but I had to be outside the pool and I was going to open up Michael Mays's, um, fly because I was supposed to give him a blowjob. My character, Florine, was going to give him, Max, a blowjob. So I got down on my knees and I unzipped this fly and I reached in and I screamed so loud and dropped back and you're like, cut, cut, what? And then I started laughing hysterically because I, I, whenever, when some people said they were going to wear socks on their dicks, I think I just thought of like, you know, like a white athletic sock, but he had some kind of a weird fuzzy thick like black army sock and i wasn't expecting to see that on his dick do you know what i mean it scared the shit out of me amazing (laughs) (laughs) so many things happen behind the scenes on any movie that it's you can't even make a list they're unreal especially on your movies because they're all completely psychotic totally (laughs) (laughs) um like like uh, the movies that we were making after hours on the scene of um, of the Casserole Club were insane. Most of this was through Jane Weedlin's and my instigation. We were the ones that started it with a fake maiden form bra ad, but we didn't want we didn't want you to know because we didn't want you to know that like the whole cast and lots of the crew were staying up until like five in the morning when we had to be on camera the next day at like nine you know we didn't want you to get nervous about it but we made like we made like parodies of brokeback mountain and jaws using the swimming pools (laughs) in the houses that were rented for the writers retreat and um my favorite one was when we did silence of the lambs and jane um jane and i were sharing a little casita back house and we totally like dragged the mattresses off the bed and took the bed springs out and propped them up so that they could be the jail. And we had Nick, one of the actors, as Hannibal Lecter. And he was on, he was on like a, a moving dolly trolley thing. And we had like a, a salad spinner like around, around his face. <laughs> and we had handcuffs because Jane had handcuffs with her. And his his arms were outside the bars, and he was he was he was like um, quid pro quo, Clarice. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, we, and Susan Trailer and um, Michael Mays and a couple of the other actors hadn't even seen the Silence of the Lambs, but Jane and I could quote it verbatim, like almost every scene. And when they saw the scenes that we were reenacting, they got like seriously disturbed. <laughs> 
That was amazing. Well, and I didn't know about it at all until way after the fact. <laughs> and then when I saw it, I'm like, how the hell did you guys make all these short films every night? Like, you've made like 12 short films. We've only been here for two and a half weeks. <laughs> like, where did you find the time to do this? And, and then they, they were all amazing. Got, they all got edited too. <laughs> totally. It was crazy. Like, I can't imagine that you guys slept at all. We didn't. <laughs> it, was, it was too hot to sleep. Um, what? So let's talk about um, let's talk about music and how and how you work because a lot of your um, a lot of your storyboards that you've drawn, you you would have musical soundtracks and stuff, and you know. So what are what are some of what, tell tell us about like your favorite types of music or what kind of music you use for working or how you score films? Attention, super mega Jaja is here, and she doesn't stop at cops. She slaps away every bit of injustice, fascism, prejudice, and abuse with a flick of her opera gloved hand. She knows where power is, in beauty, in knowledge, and the lethal combination of both. She knows seduction from deceit, what women like, and what makes men weak. She puts together a pretty package, negligees instead of negligence, rhinestones and marabou, a brocade clutch perfect for evening. A black velvet, come fuck me, pump. She's a fist of steel crowned with an ostentatious dinner ring. Super mega jaja sprang forth full blown from the forehead of Charles Nelson Riley during an otherwise average episode of Hollywood Squares. That's really cool uh, question. Um, when I was at CalArts for film school, there was a class called Jazz Editing, and it taught us how to look at an editing of a scene with a rhythm. So Hitchcock would do sort of a, a wide shot, and then he would go closer and closer and closer to this person, closer to that person, closer, 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 way back. You know, and there was this sort of rhythm to it that I really took to heart. And so when I am approaching anything, I see it in my mind already and I hear it that way. I hear and see the rhythm of it. But in order for that to be communicated, I have to sketch it down. So then I have to make storyboards and I have to sort of plot it out so that I make sure I get each one of those elements. And the music can be different. My, one, jazz is one of my favorites, of course, but I listen to every genre of music and every kind of music globally um it doesn't matter what language or culture the music is from if it sparks in me something that's visually rhythm rhythmic which is interesting it's sort of like taking the sound of the picture and there's a line in my new movie that's in post right now where she asks can you hear the sound of that color and I love that idea because, of course, there are frequencies in everything. So I try to, like, find out what frequency is this that I'm hearing. Is it rap? Is it blues? Is it jazz? Is it African drumming? Is it whatever it is? 
And then I listen to it and that informs me how I'm going to cut it and put it together, which then informs me how I'm going to direct it and shoot it. So it's a whole thing that I do and I love it. And music is really, really important through the whole process. Yeah, definitely. Music is, is so important. <clears throat> and scoring is, is also part of it. One of the, my two favorite composers are Heather Schmidt uh, and Rob Kleiner. And both of them are people that I've worked with repeatedly whom have every time they send me a song or a, a, an excerpt or a measure for a scene, it just fits it. I mean, I don't know how they do it. It's sort of like when you work with great actors and they just, they just come and do it. I don't know what that is. I don't need to know what it is, but I love it and I see it and I appreciate it and I'm thankful for it. And it's magical. It's amazing. Yeah. Rob Kleiner's um, score for Stuck was insane. Yeah. So good. It was like, it was like total beatnik jazz. Totally. And I like, I, I like using musicians as actors a lot because it's like they're, and I advise other young filmmakers to think about this too. You know, there are artists who create um, to inspire and entertain in, in a variety of ways. And just because they're not actors per se, doesn't mean they're already not performers. And it's the exact same thing. And a lot of musicians aren't asked to be in movies. Typically. Yeah, Mike was very, Mike Patton was very nervous. He he called me up after you guys talked and he was yelling like what makes you think I can act? What makes you think I can be in a movie? Yeah. And I but I told him I'm like, "Hey, you go out on stage as a character." And it's the yeah. same thing. It's I don't exactly think he realized that though. I mean, he was he was so good in, in that movie, damn. Totally. Yeah, it's amazing. And I, I like making music sometimes. I haven't for years, but uh, in the like 99, 2000, I did two albums, which was crazy. And it was sort of like a fun experiment in sounds and storytelling using auditorial inspiration as opposed to auditory ins- inspiration as opposed to visual. Yeah, those were great. Thank you. So who would you, um, who would be your dream musicians to work with Um, in the future? Do they have to be alive? No, I was just going to say maybe they don't have to be alive because I I would say David Bowie if I was making it. Oh my God. Okay. If David Bowie and Sam Cooke could collaborate on a score or no, Thelonious Monk and David Bowie. Yeah. Like, just some crazy-ass combinations could be awesome. So good. Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> Jimi Hendrix and Mike Patton. Or, uh, I mean, I don't know. There's, there's so many, so many great... You know, it's then I look at the people who aren't so... They're great. They're icons. You know, like Madonna or like Lady Gaga or like um, Prince who are more modern, but I'm like, God, what would they have done if they did a rock opera? Oh, yeah. You know, but like in the style of like the wall. Yeah. You know, like those things would be really cool. I would love to do a musical someday for sure. I've never, I don't even know like what it would be, but I would love to direct a musical. And it would have to be kind of like that. It would have to be like a crazy, weird, 
sci-fi gothic something. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? That would be fabulous. Um, What kind of, what kind of plans do you have for films after, after this next one comes out? Are you working on stuff? I do. I have a, a female driven Western. That's a classic Western where the, the gender roles are reversed. So all the positions of power are women and all the laborers and prostitutes are men. If you don't have me in this, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) We'll discuss it. I'll send you the script. I also uh, wrote a pilot and a series uh, with Amanda Dibert and uh, Pablo Diablo based on Elizabeth Bathory. uh, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah world-renowned female serial killer. So there's a lot of things like on the back burners. I mean, I've got probably 12 projects on the back burners and I don't know which one's going to be next, but they're all sort of sitting there simmering. Tell us about your spiritual practices. Well, I was in a, a terribly emotionally abusive relationship for 12 years. And when I got out of that, I felt really betrayed and hit and numb. And I wanted to find the piece of learning how to heal from that. And so I looked into neuroscience and I had a friend who was a shaman healer woman. And through the combination of working with the healer and learning neuro-linguistic programming and studying the effects of the mind and the body and the way all of it is put together, and then also the universe as a whole, um, it, 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 when I say it enlightened me, I don't mean it as, as trite as that sounds. It actually like it lit something up in me. It turned the light on (laughs) it. It turned the switch on. So then I, I continued to, uh, meditate. I, when I get signals and messages coming from the universe and the cosmos and the, the energy around me and the frequencies and all of these things, I, I listen to them. I make note of them. I'm thankful for them and I appreciate them. And I sort of do what they say. Like somebody earlier today was asking me, oh, this movie you've just made is a masterpiece. And I said, well, I don't know if I can say that, but I can tell you that I was true to the creative energy. So the creative energy comes from wherever it comes and it comes through into me and I put it out there on the paper and in the shot and in the editing and in the images and I I put it together. And if I am true to it, 100% without questioning it, that's what is truthful and it works for me. And if that's what makes something great, well, that's for someone else to decide because no matter what I do, 10% of anybody or half or whatever will hate it. So it doesn't matter as long as I'm true to the source. So I like being tapped into um, the world around me and the, the unknown, like Karen said, you know, and, and just really appreciating uh, things that I can't explain, but I, I experience I have this this picture taped on my refrigerator that says, if this, and you fill in the blank, could be anything, is a truth of the universe, it is possible for me to experience it. You might have a belief, you might 
believe in whatever you believe, but you may never experience it. So those things don't appeal to me. But what appeals to me is the idea of if I can experience that, then that must be a truth of the universe. So that's sort of the practice that I, I go through in the world. And if, if I'm sensing a crazy, weird, energetic healing session where the vibrations are strong and I can feel the pulsation against my ear, I've experienced that. I don't need to understand it. I don't need to make sense of it. But I have to appreciate it and just recognize that I've experienced that. That's the truth of the universe. And that's just how it is. And you're a hypnotist too, right? I love doing guided meditations, which is what I call it. I mean, you, you hypnotize the whole cast. And I remember when we were in um, Kansas one time. No, I know. But I, I call it just doing a guided meditation because every sort of meditation is hypnosis and all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. It's not something that somebody's doing to you. It's something that they're guiding you and you are exploring yourself. So I love doing that. And I love doing it for myself. I love just last night, I had a friend who had a, a problem and he was conflicted and he was going through something. And I said, okay, calm down and just close your eyes and let's just talk through this. And I, I love the way that my voice changes when I'm doing it. I was just going to say that. Okay, can we conclude this interview? Will you, will you um, hypnotize or guidedly meditate like our listeners? Okay, but first you have to say and preface, if, if anybody is driving or operating any sort of sharp, heavy, dangerous equipment, you can't do this. You have to yeah, stop. Don't listen. Yeah, you, you just stop la, it now. La, 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 just plug up your ears and go, la, totally. la, la. <laughs> But if you're, if you're in a place where you can be comfortable, then what I allow you to do and what I would invite you to allow yourself to do is to just, just take a moment and relax and just feel your body there, however it is. Maybe you've had a long day could have been fighting all those things on the computer and those other things and all the things that come at you when you don't want them or you're not ready for them. Whatever it is, maybe it's something that hurts. Maybe you have a, sh a shoulder or a pain somewhere in your body. Maybe there's a something happening. You can just allow yourself to relax and take notice of what that place is. And when you do, and when you notice that place, you can reach out to it with a very gentle embrace and you can hug it and thank it for showing you that, whatever it's showing you. And you can just embrace that and you can just fill it and fill the whole area with love and compassion and empathy. Even if you don't understand it, Maybe this, this part has been causing you great difficulty or pain all day long. That's okay. You can thank it. Say, thank you for being there. Thank you for showing me this. Embrace it. And soon enough, when you allow yourself to have that time embracing that part of you, it will relax and dissolve and float and disappear however it wants into all of awareness. And then once that happens, you can just invite yourself to return to the room just as you were and feel a little bit lighter 
and you can go around the rest of the day or night feeling a little bit lighter, a little bit more calm or content, or at least in love with all the parts of you that you know you have and you'll always have. Yay. So, yeah. <laughs> I got all woozy from that. Well, it was really great to have you, Steve. Thank you very much. I am honored to talk to you in this format. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you guys, you can go back to driving or boozing it up or whatever you were doing. Totally. Uh, this, is, this has been the Devil's mm. Music Podcast, and that was director Steve Balderson. Before He's we got- go, let me tell you, I for the time being, I've made a list of movie links and passwords so that anybody who is stuck at home and wants something new to watch can track down on my Facebook or Instagram or Twitter the, the, my film library I've made available for free, complimentary to everyone on Earth. Give us your social links. Okay, so dikenga.com is my website, D-I-K-E-N-G-A.com, dikenga.com. And on Instagram, it's at Dakenga, D-I-K-E-N-G-A. And Twitter is at S. Balderson. And then on Facebook, I'm just Steve Balderson. Okay. Thank you, Steve Balderson. Thank you. Mwah. Mwah. <laughs> Bye. So, how'd you like Steve? He's one of my favorite humans on the face of the earth. Check out his movies, classes, and lectures at dakenga.com. You can buy his films there, too. That's D-I-K-E-N-G-A dot com. Other places you can find him on the web are at stevebalderson.com. His Instagram is at dakenga. And his Twitter is at S. Balderson. Check him out. The Devil's Music is written and hosted by Pleasant Gaiman. Produced by Aaron Alden. All sound design by Jerry Danielson of Busy Signal Studios. And of course, is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at Pantheon Podcasts. Dot com. Our social presence is at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found wherever you get great music. Please pick up these important and fantastic tracks. <laughs>